ever would have thought when Westlife released their debut song in 1999, it would be the start of seven consecutive number one hits in the UK and lead them to becoming one of the biggest boy bands in the world. But six years into their journey and 12 number one hits and millions of record sales later, one member decided to call it a day. So here to talk about his life after that thing he did, please welcome Brian McFadden. Brian, hello, how are you? How are you doing? Are you okay? I'm good, thanks. Well, actually, no, my crown has literally just fallen out of my mouth, so I look a little bit gappy in the tooth, so don't judge me. You know you're supposed to wear your crown on your head and not in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Tell the dentist that. Um, before we kick off, I heard you binge watch season five of Cobra Kai a couple of weeks ago, and I'm seven episodes in, so without spoiling it for anyone that hasn't seen it yet, yeah. how do you rate it against the previous four seasons, and what do you love so much about it? It's pretty much the same. You know, every season they bring in new characters and it's, you know, anyone that's fighting makes friends. It's all the usual stuff. But, you know, that's what I love about Cobra Kai. And I've actually watched, I watched season one when it was on YouTube Red um, before anyone kind of knew what it was. And it was kind of cheaply made. And I still loved it. I just loved anything to do with the Karate Kid. You know, I've been watching it since I was a baby and I still watch it as an adult. So when it came out for us, I was really excited. And then when I found out that Netflix were taking over, um, and obviously they pumped a lot of money into it and it's just, just keeps getting better and better. And I'm, I haven't actually, season two, three, four and five, I watched all of them back to back um, when they came out. So like season five, as soon as it came out, I woke up that morning, put it on and didn't leave the couch until it was finished. That's dedication for you. Yeah, <laughs> proper Cobra Kai fan. <laughs> okay, cool. Let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Let's rewind to 1998. You'd been working in McDonald's and had formed a group of two friends and you were gigging around in Dublin. And simultaneously, Louis Walsh was managing a group mm -hmm. called IOU at the time, but had failed to get a record deal with Simon Cowell at BMG because, and I'm quoting Simon from his book here, he said that although they had great voices, they were, quote, the ugliest band he'd ever seen in his life harsh um, <laughs> so louis auditioned for a couple of replacements and you and nikki were hired and westlife or westside as it was known then before you had to change your name for legal reasons was born mm. that must have been an interesting way to join the band well if if simon cowell is sticking to his word that basically means that me and nikki are the pretty ones in the band i guess yes <laughs> <laughs> if the original band was too ugly <laughs> that must we must be absolutely gorgeous me and nikki um, yeah, that's how it happens. You know, and it's it's so strange even trying to think back now because it's, you know, talking 24 years ago. And and, it, and because it was such an exciting time and so much happened so quick, you know, I, I, so many things I forget what happened and it still kind of feels like a, a big, massive blur. But all I kind of remember from that time and, and from leaving Cartel and joining IOU when I, when I auditioned for Louis' band was just every day just felt like I was on a cloud. You know, everything was so exciting. And every day we'd get a phone call about something massive that was going to happen that we never even imagined. Like from the first phone call being told, right, you're going into a recording studio to record. Um, to You're doing your first photo shoot. You're doing your first gig. Up to your, your first singles coming out. Your first number one. Your first album. Your first massive tour. Everything just, you know, it just seemed like every day some new news would come in that would just blow your mind. And that's all I can remember from those first four years was just every day being just incredible. I guess kind of linked to that, 
after joining the band, pretty much overnight, you were straight in doing shows, mm-hmm. supporting Boyzone on tour. And six months later, you were number one with your debut hit, Swear It Again. Mm-hmm. And then that kicked off this whirlwind first 12 months where you scored four consecutive number ones. And within two years, you'd scored nine UK number one singles, two chart-topping albums, played to a million fans in 32 countries and sold more than 14 million albums. And you really worked for it, working 360 days a year, 19 mm-hmm. hour days sometimes on constant promos and tours. And other singers I've spoken to on the podcast who were also in bands talk about how at the height of their careers, because they were pretty much worked like dogs, everything was a blur. Yeah. So looking back on it now, does it almost feel like it was someone else's life? Or is, is that like how it feels for you? Or? Yeah. It, and I think it wasn't until I left Westlife and I looked back at that the whole period of you know, if you think about it, it was only five, six years, six years I was in the band, five and a half years, and it did feel like 20 years because we'd done so much stuff. Like when I look at my career now and, you know, I'm going on tour, you know, on Monday, you know, there's there's so much gaps between what we do because we take everything in. We, we just do a concert at night. That's it. Then the daytime is ours to spend with our family, do what we want, and everything is spread out and we, we get to enjoy it. And we do a lot less than we did back then. Back then, it just seemed like you had to do everything all at the same time. You'd wake up in the morning and you'd be straight in to do like a breakfast TV show. Straight from there to do a photo shoot, then radio interviews, uh, then another photo shoot, uh, sound check, gig, something after that, then onto a plane, next country. It, it was constant, constant, constant. There was never any, you know, there was never a time to yourself at all. Pretty much the only time you ever got to yourself was when whatever time it would be, midnight, one o'clock in the morning, when you close your hotel door room and that's it. You would just lie in the bed and it's it would take you so long to come down because you'd have done so much so all day. Even though we were knackered tired, it was still this kind of a high buzz of excitement. And you just kind of lie in your room. But that was the weirdest part because everything was so manic all day that the silence at night was almost eerie and you, you find it hard to sleep. Mm. Westlife released a single with Mariah Carey, mm-hmm. a cover of Phil Collins Against All Odds, and also in Simon Cowell's book, he said that when he first heard the song, he thought it was terrible and demanded it was changed, which it was, um, even though no one wanted to tell Mariah. Um, what are your memories of working with her as you recorded the song and video at her house in Capri, didn't you? Well, I don't know where what Simon is talking about because <laughs> we recorded this. Basically, we did the whole campaign. So we did recorded the song, shot the video, and did all of the press for the whole world in 24 hours. We didn't sleep. Wow. We arrived at 8 a.m. on the Island of Capri, and we left the following morning at 8 a.m. without sleeping. Um, I don't know what Simon's talking about because the recording of the song went really smooth, and pretty much what we'd done in the day was the song. So Simon does like to take credit for things that he didn't do. <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't even know if Simon heard the song, to be honest with you, because it was... It was kind of done, dusted, and, and put out. I think it was out nearly within a week of us recording it. So uh, yeah, I'm not really sure what Simon's talking about. But that experience was, again, th- that experience of, of doing a whole single campaign, shooting a video, the photo shoot for the front of the single, all of that, the fact that that happened in 24 hours pretty much sums up what Westlife was like for me for five and a half years. Everything just happened in one go so quick. You know, I've done other duets in, in my life, and you know, you'd spend maybe a day in the studio recording and writing or whatever you do. Then you'd meet up again, shoot a music video. Then you might go and promote it on TV and do interviews together. 
No, but with Mariah, we did the whole thing. What would normally be maybe a three-month campaign in 24 hours. Wow. You did something quite unusual for a boy band member, especially one quite so young at 21, which was getting married and having a baby. Mm -hmm. We had two daughters during that time. Did management ever have any reservations about that? Because not only were you taking yourself off the market Mm -hmm. in the eyes of fans, obviously you were brought in as one of the pretty ones, (laughs) but but were you also becoming... um, yeah, you know, but becoming a family man as well, that would split your priorities with the band. Well, it wasn't about that. Everybody lost their shit first when I told them that we were having a baby. It wasn't the, the getting married thing, really. That was the baby. It was when we got pregnant with Molly. Everybody, Louis lost his bananas. Um, I remember Keen lost his shit. Um, I told Mark and Nikki, and actually both of them were, were kind of happy for me. They were like, look, this, it's exciting and everything. But then <laughs> I remember we were, we were in a a rehearsal studio in Dublin when Louis rang Keen to tell Keen that he found out that I was pregnant. So I hadn't told Shane and Keen yet, but I had told Mark and Nikki. So Keen says, everyone, Brian, into the bathroom because we had all our band and crew and the dancers and everyone. <laughs> and we went into the bathroom and Keen goes, are you pregnant? And I was like, yeah. And Shane went, what? <laughs> and then Nikki and Mark looked at each other and both looked at him and went, what? <laughs> they had to pretend they didn't know. Look, at the end of the day, you know, we were only very young at the time and we had been kind of warned off about getting into long-term relationships at the time because, you know, the late 90s and, and Keith would tell you, you know, it was would have been the same for the early days of Boyzone. You, you know, young boy bands are supposed to be appealable to young girls. So mm. if you're off getting married and having babies, it's not the kind of thing that teenage girls want to be screaming at anymore. So yeah. there was that pressure. But at the end of the day, it is just a, a job. It's the greatest job in the world. And we're the luckiest people in the world to have had this job and to still have it now. But, you know, life is more important. And, uh, you know, having Molly and having a baby was, was definitely more important to me than some bullshit rule about not having families and not having, a, you know, having a wife. How did I know? I could have been dead before I was 23 and never had a chance in a family. So to me, I was excited. I was very, very excited to become a dad. Um, so, yeah, I think looking back now, it was ridiculous that I ever even for a second was scared to tell anybody. Um, you know, my own family were happy for me and I was happy. So at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Yeah. So you have a dream of getting in a band and you achieve that. Mm-hmm. And then you have a dream to get a top 10 single and you more than achieve that with seven consecutive number ones. Well, no, I had not a dream to have a top 10 single. My first dream was to even have music released, mm. you know, because I remember being in Cartel before I was in Westlife. And, you know, our first dream was to get into a recording studio and just record music full stop. And we did that. But obviously then you need a record label to release it. So for me, the first dream wasn't about charting or anything like that. It was just to actually have a printed CD with my face on it, with my voice on a CD. That was the the first dream. Um, And I don't think we ever expected the first single to go straight into number one. You know, that, that, that just seemed like every dream that we dreamed of, just the dreams just became bigger and bigger. Every time something would come true, something bigger would come along. So that's the thing. Like at some point, after you're checking all these dreams off the list, mm. after a while, you must run out of dreams, apart from maybe getting a day off <laughs> or having a holiday. Yeah. So what do you do then? Is that when you start getting bored and frustrated of being in a band? No, you know what? It's one of those things. There's always something else to aim for. You know, I think for us, obviously, when we started having all the number ones, we got to, I think we got to 12 number one singles. 
And then our goal was to beat Elvis's record, which was 18. You know, I know that sounds such an arrogant thing to say, but that's the way it was. Your dreams just get bigger and bigger. And, you know, we'd kind of conquered most of the world except for America. And then that was another dream. So the, the two kind of big dreams that we had coming to the end of my tenure in the band um, was that we never we never caught up with Elvis and we never broke America. And they were pretty much the only two dreams we have that we didn't, that didn't come true. Everything else that we dreamed of did come true. And they were the only two that didn't. So you decided to leave the band after six years. And you said at the time that it was hard to juggle two lives when you're in a boy band and have a family and you couldn't fully 100% commit to either. But what I find interesting is that in recent years, we've seen bands just release statements on Instagram when a member leaves, but you had to give a press conference with the guys to announce it. And Kean There was no Instagram back there. Yeah, but Kean <laughs> Kean read a statement in tears. It was it was almost like a eulogy. And then you left the room and the guys were there to like field more questions. What was that like? That must have been a lot of pressure to have that much glare on you. It was strange, but we, we kind of had that glare all the time. You know, every country that we would go to, we would have a press conference. So if we like went to Indonesia, the first thing that would happen when we land in that country is we'd be brought to a room and have a press conference in front of a hundred of the media. So doing press conferences wasn't a weird thing. Doing a press conference about leaving the band was strange for me because there was a kind of a closure to it, thinking in my head, this is the last time I'm going to do one of these. You know, normally I'd be doing it, telling about uh, an album out or tour that we're about to do, but to, to be doing one that was announcing the fact that I was never going to be doing one of these again was was quite surreal. But as you say, nowadays, you know, you've got social media and stuff. You, you don't need to do press conferences. But back then, the only way that you could get the word out was by calling the press and telling them what you wanted to say. Mm. Um, I, think, I think there had been a rumor because, you know, I, I didn't just wake up in the morning and go, right, call a press conference, I'm leaving. We had been speaking for a couple of weeks and I think there had been a few leaks in the camp because when we called the press conference, I think all the press kind of already knew what it was going to be about. So it wasn't that it wasn't that kind of shock moment to anybody. It was just more we need to document this and tell everyone that he's leaving. Uh, last question in the nostalgia zone. There's something quite cheeky about the end of the "If I Let You Go" video. Would you like to share? Yeah. Well, there's two two things I'll always remember about the "If I Let You Go" video. First of all, it happened on the night. Um, that Manchester United won the Champions League in 1999 because after the video shoot we we were driving back to our hotel and the game was on and we stopped in the tiniest tiniest little old pub in the middle of nowhere that probably held about 10 people and there was 50 of us with the crew and everyone that was in the video all on the bus and we all just piled in and watched the game Um, and as a Man United fan that always sticks in my mind. But every time I watch the video, there's a scene at the very, very end where the five of us are all walking away. And for that last shot, because you can only see our backs, we all decided just for the crack, we'd all hang our penises out the front of our zippers. So, <laughs> Were you walking towards anyone at the time? <laughs> no, that was luckily enough we weren't. But when we actually got to the end of the shot and they said, you could actually see that there were a couple of the crew members that were over on the dunes. <laughs> they, and they, there were two guys, but they, they found it very funny. Cool. Okay, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. You left the band. 
had a break and decompressed a bit. And then you realised it wasn't quite what you thought it would be and um, started missing music. So you started writing again, your first solo album, Irish Sun. And your first single, Real To Me, went straight in at number one. Yeah. How much pressure did you feel at that time releasing that album? Because it's your baby and it will inevitably be compared to Westlife. And you're thinking, will people like this? Will they think it's bad? And you need a new image to separate yourself from them. Well, there was two things. You know, a lot of people always ask me the question, and I know it's been said before, is, you know, you said you were leaving Westlife to spend more time with your family and to have more freedom. Um, and then you bring out an album later on that same year and you start working pretty soon after Westlife. But the difference between when I was working as a solo artist and being in the band was that I had complete control of what I could do. If so, if somebody said to me, okay, you've got a gig in Barcelona tomorrow and... I had to do something with my kids tomorrow. I could just go, I'm not doing the gig in Barcelona tomorrow. Whereas in Westlife, you couldn't do that because you had four of the members of the band, you had management, you had record companies. It was a huge machine. And you, you kind of have to just roll with the punches and go with whatever they say. Whereas when you're the main artist by yourself, you're in complete control. So that was the main reason that I went back because I, I, I never wanted to stop singing. I, I didn't leave Westlife because I was fed up with performing or being in the studio or anything like that. I was fed up of being on the road completely 360 odd days a year and never having any control to be able to have that split between work and life. Mm. Um, and, and doing the solo album meant I could have the two things I love, which is the freedom to have as much time with my family and friends that I want, but also the freedom to sing and record music, whatever I wanted as well. So to me, that was kind of, that was always in my head of, of what I wanted to do. And I've pretty much been doing that for 18 years since I've left, you know, and I've never once, you know, if you, if you think about it, the pressure I was under for after five and a half years of Westlife, that I got to a stage where I actually wanted to leave, you know, the band who were probably the biggest band in the world at the time. Um, but I've never in the last 18 years ever since that thought about quitting or, or not doing gigs or doing anything because I've got full control of my own life again. Mm. And then you went off to Australia for seven years. And mm. in that time, you also forged a TV career, hosting an X Factor type football show, Football Superstar. You appeared as a guest judge on Australian Idol and then spent three years as a judge on Australia's Got Talent. But you also released three albums in Australia and had a string of hits there, which you didn't release back over here or in Europe. Yeah. Was that a conscious decision to keep things, I say small, but, but focused just on Australia? Yeah, 100%. It was a new life. I, I, I arrived in Australia and, you know, Westlife weren't that big in Australia, so nobody really knew who I was. So I got to start from scratch, which was was good. So I got to, you know, people started to know me as Brian McFadden, the solo artist. So for me, I was enjoying that. And I obviously, you know, I left a lot of baggage in the media and press and and with fans and with the general public. I left a lot of baggage behind when I went to Australia. And I was really enjoying, you know, what I was doing in Australia. I was releasing my own music that I was writing that was a true representation of what I am as an artist. And I was getting well received for it. Um, and I just didn't want to come back with that same music to the UK and be ridiculed and, you know, be picked apart every five minutes. So 
I kind of just closed the door and said, no, I'm just going to stay here. I'm happy releasing music in Australia, releasing albums. Uh, and when it comes to TV, I never had any interest in doing TV. It was two Scottish guys that I met over there who were starting this show, Football Superstar. And we were having a couple of beers and they said, what about you giving a go a host of this show? And I was like, I don't, I've never hosted that in my life. It's not really something that I'm into. And they said, well, just give it a go for us. So I gave it a go. They kind of liked the way I hosted it because I wasn't an actual TV host. I loved football. I'm a massive football fan. So I enjoyed being around the set every day because it was on a football pitch and around footballers. Um, and I didn't really host. I just kind of was there. And I think that's why they liked it. And that's what kind of led to me doing TV, you know, from there. That I was just not saying it was natural, but I, I, I wasn't trained TV host. So I just kind of jumped into a scenario and just became a part of it and enjoyed it. That obviously led to me doing Idol and then Australia's Got Talent. But even when I came home to the UK then, um, doing Who's Doing the Dishes, it was the same thing. I wasn't really hosting that. They just kind of threw me into the middle of a situation and just let me kind of have the chats with people. So, you know, I've never had a dream of standing on, you know, standing on the stage like Anton Deck or Dermot O'Leary or someone like that in a suit hosting a show. That's not me. But all the little things that I've done, you know, they're kind of, they worked perfect for me because I just got to be me and have a bit of fun and I've enjoyed it. Um, similar with, you know, some of the other things that I've done, like the jump, you know, there's, there's, I get offered all these shows all the time, like Celebrity Big Brother, and uh, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, all these kind of shows. And I have no interest, but sometimes, you know, things come along that I go, you know what, that sounds like a brilliant challenge. And I remember when I got offered the jump, I was like, that sounds unbelievable. You know, getting the best coaches in the world. You didn't get injured. <laughs> I did get injured. I was the only person that, I broke my ribs, but I was the only person on the jump who didn't get injured on the mountain. I fell outside of a bar, slipped on a bit of ice and cracked my ribs. <laughs> but my claim to fame is that I had a cigarette in my mouth at the time and a drink in my hand and I didn't spill a drop of the drink and the cigarette stayed in my mouth even after breaking two ribs. Skills. <laughs> but everybody else on that, everyone else on the show pretty much you know, the, and it's not even funny because the amount of people that had life-changing injuries on that yeah. that series of the jump was incredible. You know, like Beth Tweedle, she broke her neck. Yeah, you know, like yeah. we're not talking we're not talking broken fingers and cracked ribs. We're talking people with life-changing injuries. It was absolutely bizarre. But again, it was an incredible experience to have you know world-class coaches teaching you these. You know, some of these things we we were doing, people just don't get to do them unless. You know, you're very, very rich or very, very lucky because, you know, things like the luge, getting to go down the bobsleigh track, like you can't just walk rock up to a bobsleigh track and jump down it. <laughs> so to be trained how to do that, not anybody can just get up and, and get trained how to do the, the ski jump. Yeah. You know, you can't just go up to a ski jump place and pay pay a fiver and just fly off it. You know, you got you got to be really lucky. So we got to do these things that not most people don't ever get to do. And, you know, it was a an incredible three months of my life. And I learned so many skills that I, I you know, would never have got the chance to do. And, and I'll never, ever again go on a snow mountain. And that was that after that three months, I said, right, I got to do that. That was brilliant, but I will never, ever go near any of them again. It was done now. I think I, I had snow blindness when I came home because every day was just white snow everywhere. You're, um, you're pretty upfront and honest about your life, talking about both the ups and downs. And the one thing I noted was that you had a hair transplant yeah. in 2018. And usually that's something most male stars would want kept quiet and not address it, even when papers publish pictures or speculation. And, you know, 
sometimes they even get an injunction out to stop people reporting it. <laughs> Why did you decide to speak openly about it? Because it's nothing to be ashamed of, you know. Women get boob jobs. Women get all these things done and it's never been a problem. So, you know, if you're in an industry like I am and, and your hair is quite an important thing, you know, men do have a serious paranoia about going bald. So I had an opportunity to stop that. I was starting to, to go bald at the front. I didn't like it. I plan on being on stage for the rest of my life. So I had an opportunity to do something about it. And I did it. And I wanted to speak openly to, to men to say, this isn't something that you need to be ashamed of mm. or shy of. You know, if, if there's a chance to fix it, it's the same as going to the dentist. If your two front teeth fall out, you're not going to walk around with your two front teeth gone for the rest of your life because you're too proud to admit that you go to a dentist to get fake teeth in, you know what I mean? Or, or whatever. So to me, getting a hair transplant is pretty much the same as getting your teeth fixed or anything else. You know, people are, it's, we live in a vain world and I didn't want to be bald at 40. Mm. So I got a hair transplant and there's nothing wrong with it. And you know, what? I've got a couple of friends now who never would have thought about doing it. They've done it. And you know what? The confidence they have now, they feel great. So if you can do anything for yourself, listen, we're on this planet for a short time, right? You have to enjoy it. You have to be comfortable. And if, if your hair is important to you, which it always was to me, I always loved having long hair. You know, I had the McDonald's sign in Westlife. I thought oh, every different haircut. Um, and, and being bald was not a look that I wanted, especially when you've got an egghead like I have. So <laughs> yeah, I got my hair done and I've been delighted ever since. I'm back to having the long hair again and, and I feel great. I wake up every morning, look at my hair and go, that's better. Rather than when, before I got it done, I'd wake up every morning and I'd be pulling back my hairline going, oh, it's getting worse. And I'd be feeling awkward. And I'd be looking at photographs when we're doing photo shoots and seeing, could you see it? And I'd be really conscious of it. So I just got it fixed. Simple as that. So alongside your solo career, you started a super group with Boyzone's Keith Duffy in 2016, Boys Life, mm -hmm. which originally started out as a string of autobiographical shows where you talked about stories from back in the day and performed a handful of both Boyzone and Westlife songs. Yeah. And then that led to an album of your collective greatest hits. And I guess with over 20 number ones between you, it's a bit of a no brainer. But you released an album of original songs earlier this year called Old School. Yeah. And listening to it, I feel like the songs wouldn't be out of place in a montage in an 80s movie well that is that was completely the template of it you know it was a quite a difficult thing to do to figure out what the sound of boys life was going to be because up to now we've been singing boys on and westlife songs and you know we're both songwriters and we've you know i've been producing music now for 20 years and we needed to create a new sound but it also it couldn't be too far away from where our both both boys on and westlife have come from um so when we talked about it you know we thought back to those great 80s and 90s movies, you know, that the soundtrack was the most important thing. Movies like The Karate Kid, you know, you listen to songs like that, bands like Chicago and all these people that had these great hits and movies. And, and that's what we said. We wanted to write an album that could be the soundtrack for Top Gun, The Karate Kid, all those big 80s and 90s blockbusters. And that was it. When, you know, obviously there's the song rising. Um, the songs had to have certain melodies and stuff that would suit who we are but the production was all about trying to sound like a movie soundtrack and uh, as you mentioned you're um, you're just about to start a 27 date UK tour well it's actually a 100 day tour but we've only announced 27 now so we're doing 27 now before Christmas and wow. then we've got another 63 to do well then I mean 
When you think back to the Westlife days of touring and how flat out they were yeah. and not that enjoyable for you, how do you maintain a good work-life balance now if you've got a 100-date tour coming up? Well, the 100 dates are over three years. Oh, okay. So we'll do 27 now. But the great thing is, is I live here now in the UK. So, like, for example, um, we start our tour and we do Liverpool, Manchester, Leicester, Sheffield. That's our first four dates. And then our fifth is um, Birmingham, right? But we get to go home every night after the gig because we live in the Manchester area. Everywhere is within an hour and a half, two hours. So, And we've got nothing else during the day. So I will leave my house at maybe three o'clock in the afternoon. I'll get to, to the venue. I'll sound check, have dinner, get on stage, do the concerts. And then I'm home and I'm in bed and I'm, I'm ready to wake up in the morning to my new baby, Ruby. So that's the difference. Whereas if this had been 20 years ago, we just would have kept moving and moving and moving and we'd be sleeping on tour buses and we'd be waking up the next day having to do interviews and photo shoots and all that stuff. When we go on tour, we do nothing else, maybe except play a game of golf in the afternoon and that's it. Speaking of golf, you do play a lot of it uh, and you have done since your Westlife days. No, I did play a lot of golf until my baby was born. Since the baby's been born, golf has been put way back in the uh, the queue priorities of, I'm not even going to say priorities it's gone way back in the queue of things that I'm allowed to do when I've got time off <laughs> <laughs> well both you and Keith play in pro-am tournaments quite successfully um, but I noticed a lot of stars play golf is it because you can literally just get away for four hours usually in the middle of nowhere where no one can hassle you mm. or is it just that popular like why aren't celebrities playing snooker it takes just as long um, no, you're right. It, it's it's for for me starting to play golf was I love getting out into the fresh air and having four and a half hours of peace. Um, I do remember actually at, at one stage when I was in Westlife that golf was the only thing that we could go where somebody wouldn't come and ask you for an autograph or because remember back then there was no selfies; it was just autographs, mm. and people would always ask for autographs. And it was the only place that people would leave you alone because you just had a massive field and. It was just a nice place to relax and and that's kind of stuck with me ever since. But, you know, anybody that, that takes up golf and, and gets into it, it's the most addictive sport in the world. Like you wake up in the morning dreaming of playing golf. As soon as you see a sunny day, you just want to go and play golf. Mm. But luckily for, for Keith and I, we both love it so much that you know we, we integrate it into our touring. So if we come off stage, instead of going out and get pissed on, right, We'll end up going to bed early because we know we're playing a nice game, you know, a nice golf course the next day. And and also we're very competitive. So we will have a little competition that will last for the whole tour and will keep us excited. If you're running short of time, do you like nip off to a pitch and putt instead or like a crazy golf? No, we don't do that. It has to be the big course or no course. <laughs> Uh, you were given the freedom of Sligo in 2000 along with the rest of the band, which I think allows you to graze your sheep anywhere. I saw you two were given the freedom of Dublin and Bono actually took a couple of lambs out for a stroll. Yeah. Have you enjoyed the perks of the honour? Um, I when The day it happened, um, I parked my car in the middle of the main street, which we we're not supposed to because that was one of the modern laws is that if you grazing sheep wherever you want was one thing, but... The modern laws was that you could also park your car anywhere you wanted. So I parked my car outside the McDonald's in the main street, which is like a pedestrian street. And I went in and got McDonald's, but I still got a ticket. <laughs> I came out and I said to the guy, I was like, I'm allowed to park my car wherever I want. And he just looked at me and goes, I don't care what freedom you have. He says, there's a ticket. You can't park your car there. I was like, well, what a load of rubbish that key is. That key to the city means nothing. <laughs> 
Brian, it's been lovely speaking with you today. I hope you have a great tour. Yes, fantastic. Enjoyed it. Thanks a million. thanks again to Brian for joining me as we were saying Boys Live kick off their UK tour on Monday the 26th of September which also happens to be my birthday so do check out all the dates they're playing you can see them listed on the guys Facebook Instagram and Twitter pages Boys Life's latest album Old School is also out now to buy and download in all the usual places and it's even available on cassette very old school Hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show, please visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. But the biggest way you can help is by just not keeping the podcast to yourself. Please share it with a friend or on social media so that others can discover and enjoy it too. And of course, if you could please hit that subscribe or follow button on your podcast player, it's totally free. Leave a five-star rating or a nice review, that would really help me out too and don't be afraid to say hello on twitter or instagram drop me a message and we can have a chat until next time thanks for listening <laughs>